The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Steve Wetmeyer is an American puppeteer who's worked with the Muppets and Sesame Street beginning with the Muppets in 1978 and he inherited the roles of Kermit the Frog and Ernie from Jim Henson and he's here with us now. How are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. This is one of the biggest moments of my life so far, I think. Oh, well, that's nice for you to say. It's big for me too, mostly because my internet is working. It's great. Yeah, that's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you've done loads of characters over the years, so for For anyone that doesn't know, what are a few of your best-known characters? Well, I I have some original characters, and then, as you stated, I I inherited a few as well. So um, I did a – one of my characters was a character named Rizzo the Rat, Mm. who I did for many, many years, who was in Muppet Christmas Carol, all the way back as far as The Muppet Show. Um, If you ever saw a show called Fraggle Rock, I was Wimbly Fraggle and Sprocket the Dog on that show. Uh, and a bunch of handful of others and so all sorts of things over the years and then I guess I'm probably maybe most known for for having stepped in to do Kermit after Jim passed away yeah absolutely now you started puppeteering when you were quite young I mean you joined the Muppets when you were only 18 and a half so how did it all start off for you what was the fascination that kicked it all off when you were just a kid well you know um I did start with Jim when, when I was between 18 and 19 years old. Mm. And I had, at that point, I had been a really obsessive Muppet fan for maybe nine or 10 years. It it started for me when I was about 10 years old, um, when Sesame street first became a a daily show in the United States. And uh, I, you know, I I was a little bit old for what they were teaching, but I was fascinated by these characters and I could see it every single day, you know, Ernie and Bird and all those guys and uh, Big Bird and everybody. So that's really when it started for me. Yeah. And you started kind of fiddling around with marionettes, I believe, but you didn't really like that. Well, you know, yeah, when I was a really little kid, like five years old, six years old, Mm. my parents bought me these two little marionettes, which... um, yeah, I just, I mean, I was, I was part, partly because I was so young and I didn't have the coordination to make them work, but they were just a mess. And I, it never interested me to try to do anything 
really with any puppets at all until Jim's work, you know, became something I was aware of. Um, And it was that, it was that particular style of puppetry I was drawn to. Yeah. I mean, before Jim Henson's work was on the TV, was there really anything big puppetry wise before then? Or was that the first time that you or even anyone had been exposed? Well, I think there were other people who were doing puppets in television before Mm. Jim. Um, There's a guy way back as far as the sort of 19, 60s uh, named Stan Freeberg, who's actually quite well known. I don't know how many people know him today, but he he did a lot of parody music and things like that. But he also was a puppeteer who did these characters on a show called Beanie and Cecil. Um, And I think that may have just been an American thing. I'm not sure. Um, But you probably find it. It doesn't ring a bell. (laughs) Yeah, you probably find it on the internet these days. But Jim actually got, I think, quite a bit of inspiration from him. Another was was this show called Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. There were two puppet characters named uh, Kukla and and Ollie, and then Fran was a human. Ah. But Jim sort of took these puppets that that we were seeing and made them a little bit more, um, well, sort of designed to work on a television screen. You know, he did away with the puppet stage that someone, you know, puppets were behind, and that became the shape of the screen. You know, he's now working the characters within the screen. Yeah, it's incredible when you look at the camera frame of any puppets or anything that Jim's done, and you sort of imagine yourself the rest of it. But really, when you look at a behind-the-scenes shot, it's only what's on the frame that actually exists. Well, that's right. And there's all kind of scurrying and hurrying around underneath yeah. and around it, you know, when, with what we were doing all those years. Um, but yeah, you know, we used to joke that when we were in, the, we'd be in a big, huge soundstage, you know, massive mm. studio somewhere, all the space around us. And you got these little puppets, which take up the screen <laughs> and these big people underneath. So we got this massive room and everything's crowded into this one little spot. You know, yeah. fully we can make use of all that space, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you joined the Muppet Show in 1978, which mm. not many people might know, but that was filmed in the UK, in Elstree. Sure was. So did it feel a bit scary to kind of go and work in a completely different country at such a young age? Well, for me it was, uh, but it, it was not uh, the fact that it was a different country added to it, I guess, mm. but I, but I had not traveled a lot. I was, I'm from Atlanta, yeah. um, Southern part of the United States. And although I had done a lot of puppet stuff, it was all local and I just hadn't traveled very much. So to be sort of plucked out of the South and dropped into the, you know, into another country at that point, at least I was in a country where we all, you know, spoke the same language. <laughs> yeah, that, that's helpful. That, that helped a little bit. Apart from a few odd words that we say differently yeah yeah and you know yeah i picked up a few of those along the way but but uh it was it was quite an experience and it was a you know a way to grow up very quickly Mm. uh but but i loved it i mean i loved the whole experience and i still have many many friends uh sort of in the london area because that's where we worked Mm. you know and i suppose spending a lot of time in the uk were there any british tv shows that you enjoyed watching Oh my goodness. I'm sh- there were, there were many, 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 cause that's what I did. Yeah. And now I'm going to have to try to remember them. <laughs> uh, it was, it would have been the late seventies. Um, I mean, it's an, this is an obvious thing to say. I could have said this and not gone to the UK, <laughs> but that was the time frame when Monty Python's flying circus was oh, a yeah. big deal. And, um, in so many ways, the sort of the strange humor of that show was a little bit of what we were trying to do with the Muppets in a funny way. Yeah. Um, and you know, so, um, there's a great documentary out there in the world about George Harrison, you know, of the Beatles Mm. done by this great director named Martin Scorsese. And in that documentary, 
Terry Jones, who is one of the Monty Python guys, says, you know, back in those days, we were just doing whatever we wanted to do. You know, we weren't, we weren't, we, we loved the fact that we had an audience and all, but we weren't doing it for the audience. We were doing it for ourselves. And there was a real kind of time frame there where artistic people were just able to do that kind of thing. And, and sometimes it was successful and sometimes it wasn't successful, but you were just doing what you loved doing, you know. Yeah. For sure. And in those early days on The Muppet Show, when you first joined in 1978, yeah. what were your first roles you had to do? Were you doing hands for people? Yeah, a lot of assisting, as yeah. we would say, you know. Um, uh, and at that point, Jim was looking to bring in a handful of new people because he knew he was going to do the first Muppet movie and some other big projects coming along like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth yeah. down the road. And so... I came in as a guy who had done a lot of puppet work, but I, but I had, didn't have an acting background particularly. I had a lot to learn in terms of doing characters. And so as was typical with Jim's company, the first thing you start out doing is, you know, a character like Fozzie Bear or Rolf the Dog, most yeah. people know, um, the main sort of lead puppeteer is running the head and one of the hands like this. So you're, yeah. you're doing this kind of thing when you're talking. Well, there's this other hand over here that has to operate. So you know, you do a lot of right hands. You're, you yeah. become the right hand of the character a lot. And it's harder than it might sound. It's more than just being the stuffing in the hand. You know, you really have to tune in to that lead performer and what they're going to do next and how they're going to say the lines they're going to say. And you don't want both hands doing the same thing all the time. Yeah. So you have to let them lead and you follow and you add to it rather than distract from what they're doing. Yeah, it's all very close contact. Yeah, uh, very much. Very much so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now, one of your first major characters that you did and you created yourself was Rezo. Mm. What was his first kind of appearance on the show? Well, the very first appearance was, um, you know, we used to do those backstage scenes on The Muppet Show, you know, yeah. Kermit's at his desk and the characters are passing through. And then behind that, Stage right. yeah, yeah, up on the balcony, there's yeah. all these characters doing all these things, whatever. <laughs> and Jim would say to us guys who were the new guys, he would say, just grab any puppet on the puppet rack over here and get back in the background of the shot and do whatever you want to do. And it was really his way of letting us have some time on camera to train us in a funny sort of way yeah. uh, without actually telling us what to do. He was, he was letting us learn on camera. And as long as we did things that were okay to be on television, you know, I couldn't do anything blue, but, but, <laughs> it, you know, but you could do whatever you wanted. So yeah. I found this rat puppet. Uh, it was, it was falling apart in terrible shape. And one day I just, Kermit's at his desk, like close up to the camera saying his lines. And this little rat popped up next to him while he was talking. And all the rat did was just sit there and listen to what Kermit was saying. And then he would look at Fozzie or whoever Kermit was talking to back to Kermit. And he would think about what Kermit was saying. He would nod yes or no. or So I just did this silly thing right there next to Kermit. And at the end of that scene, Jim just started laughing. He just cracked yeah. up laughing. And he turned around and he said, where did you get that rat puppet? That's, it's really funny. And I said, well, it was in a box, you know, under the steps or something. <laughs> and he said, well, we're going we're gonna to make that rat a star. And so yeah. we set about coming up with a name for him and uh, things like that. And, and Rizzo became a character. But honestly, it wasn't until about four or five years later that Rizzo became a kind of a, a character that I felt totally comfortable with, uh, with his New York accent, you know, and all that stuff. At the time, I had no reference for that. I, I hadn't spent any time in New York and I didn't have that 
personality within a repertoire of characters. So it took me a while to get him to the point where I really loved him. Yeah. But I will say he's probably my favorite character that I have ever performed. Ah, Well, speaking of New York, yeah. his first major role in a film was The Muppets Take Manhattan, mm-hmm. where he was working in the restaurant. Yep. So by then, do you think the character had got to where you wanted him? Yeah, that was about the four or five year mark of mm-hmm. my time in Jim's company. Um, we had already done a couple of seasons of Fraggle Rock by that point, and I had done Wembley, this character. Yeah. And... Um, in a way, Wembley helped me learn about developing a character. Um, you know, the things you need to know to, to actually perform something with some depth. And so I was able to try to transfer some of that learning into Rizzo. So by the time we did Muppets Take Manhattan, I'd say Rizzo was a pretty well-formed character. Yeah. Uh, and plus he was in his element, you know, he's a rat working in a restaurant in New York. <laughs> yeah. So, and we were shooting in New York. So yeah. I had a lot of experiences to pull from, you know. <laughs> and the rat scat scene in that film where all the rats are cooking yeah. looks really complicated to do. How long did that take to kind of choreograph? Wow. You know, I don't recall actually how long it took, but you're right that it was very complex. I mean, all those rigs were practical rigs. That was before anybody was doing any kind of computer generated characters of any kind. And so it was, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of matte painting out rods and sticks and things like that. But it was, um, it was very complicated. You know, there's a, there's a scene where a rat is, is sort of like ice skating on a grill with a (laughs) pad of butter underneath and the actual smoke and all the sizzling that's on that grill. It's actually a, it really is a hot grill yeah. With and they didn't use butter because it melted too quickly. They used bacon, oh, like like the fat part of bacon, and they put a pad of that under the character's foot so that when it it really was sizzling as and we're all smelling this bacon, you know, <laughs> as it's moving around, you know, yeah. Um, but all all practical, so so uh, pretty difficult to do. Yeah, I have a theory that Ratatouille, the film, yeah. was based off that <laughs> scene because rats cooking and all over the restaurant, yeah. it just seems right. Well, it, you know, it could have been, yeah. I, I, you know, I think um, all of, some of the best stuff comes from taking other ideas and, and sort of making them your own. So yeah. I don't think Jim would have minded that exactly. Yeah. And you know. people at Pixar are big Muppets fans by all accounts anyway. Yes. So it would make sense. They are. They are. I look at Toy Story. We did a special uh, in uh, Toronto some years later. Well, actually around that time frame called... Um, uh, the Christmas toy. Yeah. And it really was all these toys in, in a little kid's house who come to life and have their own story. Uh, so very much the same story, yeah. I, you know, different, different characters, but same idea, you know? Yeah. <laughs> now you spent a lot of time in Canada doing Fraggle Rock as well during the eighties, which I think you've said a few times is probably one of the things that you've enjoyed most in your career. So how did that start off? What was the reasoning behind that series? Well, Jim um, sort of pulled together a, a few of his core creative people. Mm. Uh, and I, I wasn't there for this meeting, but I've, I've heard about it many times. And he sat them all down in a room. It's four or five people, I think. And he said he would like to do a show that would help to end war in the world. Mm. And, you know, a pretty lofty goal. And I don't <laughs> think he had a, a, a concept of fraggles at that point of these particular creatures and and what the show would become. And so he worked with this particular group of people, but it was largely conceived by people that he trusted to do the conceptual work. And of course he was a part of that, but 
people like Jerry Jewell, who was yeah. one of the main Muppet a performer for a while and then head writer, Jocelyn Stevenson, um, incredible mind there. And a guy named Larry Merkin and a guy named Duncan Kenworthy, who went mm-hmm. on to be a kind of a major producer, um, things in you know, a lot of Hugh Grant films and oh, yeah. stuff like that. I mean, he's a big time guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So you did Wembley, of course, and Sprocket the dog. How hard was it to do a dog? Because you're not using English. So did you have to just kind of do loads of gestures to sort of convey what you wanted to say? Yeah, very much so. Um, Sprocket was, as you say, he didn't actually speak English, although he got awfully close sometimes, you know. Uh, He was a very human dog, um, but he never actually spoke words. And the the real, a lot of the key to Sprocket being able to convey what he was doing was Jerry Parks, who played in, in our country, played Doc. Mm. And it was different in the UK. Yeah. There was a different, uh, different character. I'll be honest, I've only uh, ever seen the North American version. But oh, is that right? I think, yeah. I think it was a lighthouse in the UK, but I haven't yeah. seen that version. It was, it was. Yeah. And, but it was the same idea yeah. in that the, the actor who played that character had to, you know, know all of my lines too. I mean, mm. my, my intentions. Uh, and it's not, it wouldn't be the same, you know, I think from their point of view as an actor playing off another actor where somebody says a line and you respond to it with your own line, you have to play off of this dog doing these <laughs> things who's not really giving you so much to go on necessarily. Although I tried, but uh, I give a lot of this, the credit for Sprocket to Jerry Parts. <laughs> yeah. And you also mentioned there Jerry Jewell just a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he is one of the most unfortunate passings of Muppets people? Because mm-hmm. you've got Jim who, you know, when he passed away, that changed yeah. everything. Do you think if Jerry Jewell was still here, yeah. maybe writing on future projects could have been a little bit better? Oh, I think I think it's possible. Yeah, if Jerry's influence had been allowed to uh, prevail, you know, and it was at a point where he was, in fact, still writing on some projects when he chose to step away because he wasn't happy with how his work was being interpreted sometimes, yeah. um, you know, by by the producers of certain projects. So that, you know, I mean, some people would say, well, you know, time marches on and mm-hmm. times change. But I, I, I tend to say, splitting hairs a little bit, that that times don't change as much as they kind of evolve, you know? And if you've got somebody like Jerry Jewell at your disposal, don't, I wouldn't suggest just throwing his work out and starting over. I (laughs) I would really let him sort of lead the way. Yeah. Um, Because you need the foundation of the Muppets and Jerry was so much a part of that foundation. Yeah. Because when you look at the original Muppet show, it feels completely different to new Mm. Muppet projects. And I think it's, probably a mixture of writing and the performers. Yeah. It's just, I don't know how yeah. to describe it, but there's a different feeling to it. Well, there is. Um, for one thing, you know, the Muppets were able to get a lot of, for lack of a better way of putting, a lot of mileage in those days out yeah. of the fact that they were very novel. They were still very new and novel. So yeah. when they went, the, it was the Muppets putting on a vaudeville show, it was entertaining because you hadn't seen anything like that before. Yeah. Uh, as time went on, the Muppets tried to um, evolve in a way that would keep them current. Yeah. But the problem with that is if it's not done with exactly the right balance of old and new, you end up with something that doesn't, look like the Muppets anymore. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's a really delicate thing. And, and they really, their, their own, their own world and their own being and, and who they are 
very important for that to be kind of protected within the, the you know trying to bring them into the new world yeah absolutely and with new performers it can sometimes be challenging to keep the characters going which yeah. brings me on to in 1990 when jim henson did unfortunately pass away the role of kermit was put on to you so how did you first get told that you might be up for the role well jim had never you know, Jim was seemingly a healthy guy and no one thought he was going to get something that would, would you know, we would lose him. Yeah. Um, so we'd, he'd, we'd never talked about to me or that I, you know, about passing characters on or any of that stuff. Although I, I think that stuff was on his mind because he was thinking about how the characters might live on if he moved on to do other types of work as much as anything. Yeah. So evidently he had mentioned to his wife, Jane, and I think maybe to Frank Oz and a couple of the producers that if he became too busy to continue doing Kermit, he might consider passing that along to me. We worked together for a dozen years at that point. And uh, I think for whatever reason, he felt he saw the capacity in me to do it. So um, it came to me after he passed away. Um, I had a conversation with Brian Henson and Jane Henson. And I think Frank Oz was there. Yeah. And they basically just asked me if I would like to try doing it. Um, you know, and then it was actually a little bit after that, that I uh, learned that Jim had mentioned it as a possibility. So they were kind of following something he had vaguely mentioned and, uh, and, you know, letting me give it a shot. And I, I said, yes, even though it was a very frightening <laughs> kind of thing to do, you know, I, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't that long after we had lost Jim. So, so it was an emotional time as well as yeah. a, a big challenge, you know. Did you kind of feel the first times that you performed Kermit a bit of imposter syndrome, I suppose? Like, this isn't my character. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I, I think by the time I was doing anything um, major with him, which was really Muppet Christmas Carol, mm. um, I was starting to feel a bit more comfortable with it. Yeah. But a lot of it was not trying to impersonate Jim, but trying to, you know, this sounds strange, I guess, but mm. trying to be... Jim yeah. to the extent that I was performing as Jim performing Kermit in, in a funny sort of way. Mm. Uh, it had to be that had to be my interpretation of everything that I had picked up along the way from being around Jim, you know, yeah. more, more than really anything else. Yeah. Because the characters are essentially a part of their performer. Yeah. So much so, so much so. And yeah. they, and um, particularly with a character like Kermit who had been around for, so long and was so associated with Jim and obviously of all the Muppet performers, Jim being who Jim was, was quite well known and he was known for being Kermit. So yeah. it was really an extension of Jim mm. to a large degree. So when you first sort of publicly performed Kermit, were you maybe a bit scared of people maybe watching it and thinking, well, what's up with Kermit? He doesn't sound right. Well, a little bit, I guess. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that that was not exactly in my mind in a way. What mm. I was really thinking was it, it wasn't it wasn't about the public or the fans or the audience watching. It was about, you know, trying to make sure that what I was doing jived with what my fellow performers were thinking. Ah. Uh, mm. And I and I'm actually I'm, I'm probably sure that it probably didn't initially, you know, because yeah. it was jarring for all of us. Yeah. It was jarring for me. I knew that Kermit's voice was not spot on. Yeah, it's impossible. Um, yeah, and, and what I what I really had to do was was think about 
really think about the tone of Jim's voice and how it sounded when I was standing next to him, not how it sounded on YouTube videos, but how it sounded when I stood next to him and he was doing Kermit and I was doing my character, you know, and the tones he took and the, and the expressions he made when he was doing Kermit, you know, Mm. uh, pushing that character out into this puppet. And that was, you know, uh, I've said it before, but had I not spent the time with Jim, I don't think it would have been possible for me to really, even approach doing anything faithful. Yeah, for sure. Now, the first film with you being Kermit in it was, of course, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm. How hard was it to have such a big role so early on, being this character that everyone knows, but maybe you had trouble becoming so far? Yeah. Well, well, I hadn't done very much with Kermit yet. We had done some kind of behind-the-scenes, you know, sort of, practice sessions between Frank Oz and myself a couple times. Yeah. Uh, it was very hard because not only was it Kermit, you know, me playing Jim playing Kermit, it was me playing Jim playing Kermit <laughs> playing Bob Cratchit. Uh, how would, how would Jim play Kermit if, if Kermit was playing another character and, and Jim, you know, they'd done a little bit of that, but, mm. but really not to the degree that it needed to be done to do a convincing version of a Charles Dickens story. Yeah. Um, so that was challenging. And I, but you know, it's really interesting how the original Dickens story, which is a, where everything came from, most of the script Jerry Jewell would have told you was, was right out of the book. Yeah. Uh, but it, it sort of lended itself to Kermit's sensibility, which was Jim's sensibility. You know, this, it, it was great casting. <laughs> and I have to hand it to the writers and the producers on that for deciding who, which Muppet would play which character. Yeah. Um, so Kermit was in exactly the right role. Yeah. And the first song that Kermit sung in that is One More Sleep Till Christmas. Did you feel yeah. particular pressure to get that song right? Because it's the first time anyone's going to hear your Kermit sing. I, I did. I did. I, um, yeah, it was, it was difficult, it, it, you know, and it was important to me that, uh, that at that stage uh, during this transitional time, it was more important to me that I do my very best to sound like Jim's Kermit. Yeah. Than it slowly became, you know, it, it's a very tough thing to take this character who's so established and people know what he sounds like and people know what he looks like and how he acts and how he reacts. Yeah. And this transitional time where you are not only trying to sound like, the original, but you're also trying to move like him, but most importantly, to think like him. And I, I never sounded exactly like Jim, but I was able to, to get past the point where I had to imitate Jim, you know, yeah. r- relatively quickly. And that was, you know, as I stated earlier, it was really just because I knew Jim and I knew where Kermit came from, from within Jim. Yeah. Um, and that was the total key to keeping Kermit Kermit. And the problem is that, that if that had not happened, Kermit would have entirely lost his connection to the audience mm. um, because they, the, the audience doesn't have to tolerate the change. You know, <laughs> they want a character to be the character. And if, and if suddenly it's a totally different character, that it doesn't sound the same. He doesn't move the same. He doesn't have the same reactions. He doesn't think the same. Mm. Um, but let me emphasize one quick thing, because it really is about that thought process. It's about the consciousness of the character. It's about the depth of how that character 
approaches their perspective of the world. And if you, and if that's not right, it's not the character, Mm. you know, uh, that that it, it's so important, and I think I think average an average Muppet fan might not really think about that too much. Yeah, you know, for sure. <laughs> and on the subject of kind of songs, mm. would you consider yourself a good singer? Or when you went into the recording booth to do all these songs for the films and shows, right. were you like completely nervous and didn't know what you were doing? Well, I, I think I have a reasonably good ear for music. I can hear yeah. music well. Um, there was a time when I think I was a better singer than I probably would be now. Oh. Uh, I think, unfortunately, what happens with a lot of us as we age, uh, even, and you know, this even seems to be true with people who keep singing and, you know, yeah. professionals, things change in there and, and you don't yeah. quite have the same voice you used to have. I've, I find it much harder to be on pitch now. Fortunately, mm-hmm. they now have these machines that continue <laughs> back up. Yeah. Um, but back in those days, they didn't do that so much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it wasn't so easy. So you had to, you had to keep singing it till you, you weren't flat anymore. You know? <laughs> um, and Kermit's voice sound is very clear and pure and not raspy. Yeah. And so as a result of trying to, to, to do that, it actually uh, can cause you a lot of throat pain. Oh. Um, you might think that doing a big growly voice would be a problem. And it yeah. is. But to try to be totally clear with your words can also be a quite a tightening of your vocal area, yeah. you know. <laughs> a lot of the time in the songs that you've done, you tend to do a lot of harmonies as well. Mm. I've noticed that in your characters. Is that something that you tend to sort of lean towards and be good at? Well, yeah, I, I think so, for whatever reason. Mm. You know, there was a time when I might not have really realized that, but I, I think that's probably true. Part of what I tend to hear musically is the other parts that go with the main part. You know, if you've got a main melody, my, my, I tend to be able to just hear the, the other part that goes with it. Yeah. Uh, and I used to even be better at that than I am now. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, Jer- I loved singing with Jerry Nelson, who's oh, yeah. one of our main performers, especially on Fraggle Rock. We did so many songs together that were just, I just loved singing with Jerry. And Jerry would usually sing the lead and I would usually just go up a third or take a harmony and find that other spot, especially Wembley and Gobo, those yeah, two characters. For sure. And I loved it so much. I mean, I just, you know, I, I don't know why, but I, I found it pretty, a natural thing for me. It's just one of the things I was able to do to follow those alternate lines. Yeah. I mean, there's been loads of songs in Muppets films, but there weren't any in Muppets from Space. Was there any particular artistic reason for that or did it just not feel right? Well, I I presume there was. Um, I think there was a certain feel to that film where the, where the producers were trying to, they used a lot of, you know, a kind of 70s, 80s sort of funk music yeah. and stuff, which is some good stuff. Mm. But it, but rather than have an original score, I think they were trying to get a feeling to the film that that music would give. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Muppets, we did that big opening number, Brick House, and oh, um, yeah. which has got a lot of amazing stuff in it, you know. Mm. Um, that, that movie to me is not... 
as a whole, I don't know that it's one of our better movies. Yeah. Um, but I think there you can find little bits and pieces in it that are actually really clever and really quite well done. Yeah, I think Pepe is really good in that film. Yeah. Like one of my favorite bits is when they're invisible and there's two security guards yes. and one of them smoking, and Pepe just walks back and goes, "Smoking is very bad for you, okay?" Yes, yes. and then thinks yes. it's the other guy. Well, and Bill is so brilliant with that character. Yeah. He was he was really coming into his own about that time with that character. Um, yeah. I, I you know, always loved doing Rizzo alongside Pepe and so many things when we would do that. Those two little guys yeah. about the same size who had all this, <laughs> you know, they, they were a little bit, a little bit sarcastic and, you know, they yeah. could get angry with each other and have, you know, it was always fun. How is it to do a character that's like so small compared to somebody like Fozzie, who yeah. I imagine is one of the taller characters. How do you yeah. kind of make that work on screen? Well, it can be tough. Um, you know, we do a lot of things. We did a lot of things within the Muppets that were just grab a character and populate the scene. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily terribly blocked and choreographed. You know, we just needed a bunch of characters, so you put them all in the scene. Yeah. And if you're doing this little guy, you have to find the right place to be so that they can be seen. Mm. Um, in the early Muppet show days, when Rizzo was just beginning to happen, like for the closing credits of the show, the guest star would be there and surrounded by Muppets. And I would always put Rizzo on their shoulder <laughs> um, because he, 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 he didn't distract too much, but up there you saw him. If I had tried to put him down front, Steve would have been in the way of all the other puppeteers who were trying to work, yeah. trying to reach this little character in the frame, you know, so rather than be annoying <laughs> to everybody, I would put him up there. Yeah. But I would always try, because Rizzo was small and he was no bigger than my hand, I could use my reach to, to really put my own body in a position well outside of the space where I was taking up room within where all these big people needed to be mm-hmm. and reach in to have Rizzo in a shot. Ah. Um, so I would try to do that when possible without having to overcrowd the, the puppeteers, you know. Yeah, and on a similar subject, one of the biggest problems, I suppose, with doing video with puppets is your head getting in the way. Yeah. How often does that happen? Do you have to do a load more takes than you would have to do in a normal film? Uh, yes. Well, yes and no. Um, we sort of just got used to working in these really uncomfortable positions where our heads are way down here and our arms are way up here. You know, it's uh, it it can be, it's very uncomfortable after a little while, Uh, but it's, it's what you do. And these days it's a little bit easier in the post-production process for them to remove a flash of a head going through, you know, you can paint all that stuff out, get rid of that stuff, mat it out. Uh, But back in the Muppet show days, it was not easy. And, you know, there are actually there are shots in the Muppet show that people have pointed out to me where if you frame by frame it, you could see an entire puppeteer standing there doing a puppet like for like for two frames, a flash, you know. So so uh, but, you know, it's a funny thing when I think back about the Muppet show days and before the Muppets were. They, they sort of became characters during the Sesame Street Muppet Show years. But prior to that, the Muppets were kind of the tools that this rep company of people used to put on a show. Yeah. You know, it was, it was like the Muppets were not the, not the Muppets. The Muppets were the people, mm. you know, and they went on variety shows and they did puppet shows. You know, the puppets were how they expressed what it was that they did. And then suddenly the characters themselves more and more became the troop 
and the and the puppeteers became more and more behind the scenes, um, yeah. which I think is it makes sense. You're trying to build a world for these characters as you expand them. Yeah. Now you've been partnered with Dave Goals a lot along the way. Mm-hmm. You've done Gonzo and Rizzo together, and Bunsen and Beaker, and yeah. Statler and Waldorf, of course. <laughs> what is it about you two that you think makes you work so well together? Well, you know, it's it's funny. We we have a, a very similar sensibility about silliness and humor um i mean beyond that we're pretty different people i think you know we and we but we find ways to take those differences and make them work so characters can play off of each other um and i don't mean differences like we would argue i mean differences in just the way we dave's humor is very different than mine but but it, it has a nice way of combining together and balancing um and you know we we became great friends outside of work as well. When we were on productions, we would go out to dinner all the time and we, you know, stuff yeah. like that and spend the weekends doing stuff and, you know, make little, little movies on the set and edit them together and all kinds of things. Yeah. So for whatever reason, Dave and I sort of paired off to, to be able to be performance partners in a way. Mm. Uh, and it did end up netting a number of characters. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We started out doing together like Gonzo and Rizzo, but then you would have, you know, we ended up as Statler and Waldorf (laughs) and like you said, Bunsen and Beaker and, and a whole bunch of characters, Wimbley and Boober and many, many characters together. So that partnership really worked quite well. Yeah. Do you think that you were cast for characters like Beaker and Statler because of being able to work well with Dave? 
Maybe in the case of Beaker, I seem yeah. to remember Dave saying he might have suggested that I pick up Beaker after Richard Hunt passed away uh, because we loved working together so much. And we had mm-hmm. great those, those two characters. Statler was a little bit different. Um, Statler got passed around a bunch, a bunch, amongst a bunch of performers yeah. before it settled on me. Um, <clears throat> Jerry Nelson actually had originally done Statler before Richard for a television special way back in the seventies. And then Richard did Statler for the Muppet show. So Richard sort of became Statler, Mm. but Jerry did did Statler for a while. When Jerry kind of started to retire, um, Bill Beretta did him a little bit and I did him a little bit, but it needed to be sort of zeroed in upon. It doesn't work when you've got multiple people doing the character. It needs to go someplace. Yeah. We kind of divided it up that way. Yeah. And in 2004, The Muppets was bought by Disney. Did things start to change then? Or was it still this kind of same core team doing things, just different owners? Yeah, well, it was the same core team of of puppeteers. There were only about four of us at that point who were doing kind of every major character. Mm. Um, Bill Beretta, Dave Goles, Eric Jacobson, and myself. And Eric was still pretty new to the to that core group yeah but i mean doing great work but but quite new and you know when the hensons sold the characters to disney we sort of migrated along with those characters it made sense because that's mostly what we were doing so things were quite different i mean it, it went from being really really from the time jim passed away things begin began to change and then disney was sort of a a big departure into the muppets being placed into a very corporate kind of environment. Yeah. Um, now, not that not that Disney is not one of the most creative, potentially creative companies in the world. Obviously, they do amazing <laughs> stuff. But the Muppets are, were very different than anything else Disney had dealt with. You know, you say, well, they've got other groups' characters. Why is it yeah. different? But the Muppets, they were very long time established, and they actually, they're physical characters that exist in the real world off camera you know you see them in their movies but but we know that kermit goes back to the swamp when he's not working or miss piggy goes wherever miss piggy goes you know we we perceive them to have a life and i think that's because they are physical characters that go on a a television talk show you know yeah whereas most animated characters it's it's a little bit more difficult to make something like that work yeah you know so so we know them not only as the actors in their films we know them that they have a personal life and and that i think that's a little hard to keep that going uh, within within a large corporation when they they really are just trying to exploit characters to to move them through projects. Mm, yeah. And now the first big project with Disney was the TV special The Muppets Wizard of Oz. Yeah. What was that like to work on? Well, it was uh it was a it was an interesting time and and I I mean I think we all we always have fun when we were working. I mean, yeah. with no exceptions, even when things are, even if we're doing stuff and we're saying we may not like this particular scene or, or this thing might seem out of character to us, we're still enjoying doing the work. Yeah. And I think within that special, you know, TV movie, they called it, uh, it, we, we did some really good work. I think, I think some great little puppet moments and, and stuff. I don't think it was one of the best scripts we ever did. Yeah. We still loved working together and doing it. Um, but it was an odd transitional time because just as that began was the point in time when Disney was starting to begin to absorb the Muppets. Mm. And so we were hearing a lot about how that was going to happen. And it was a little odd, you know, some of the, some of the ideas of what they would do with the Muppets seemed a little counter to what we were used to. So we had to 
come to terms with that you know yeah <laughs> the first big movie with disney after a 12 year break of movies was the muppets yeah just typecasting there yes <laughs> was there any reason why there was such a big break between that movie and the one before compared to the previous ones uh well you know i i think it, a lot of it had to do probably with the executives who were in charge of the Muppets within Disney trying to figure out how to best utilize the Muppets. And, and they got passed around amongst a lot of people who were in charge. Uh, some creative executives, some were not really creative executives. They were just business people. And, you know, the, so the question always is in a situation like that, well, what do we do? Do we do a TV series or do we do a movie? What's going to be best to get the Muppets yeah. back out there, you know, a, a weekly thing or, or a one-time thing. I, I personally sort of like the pattern that Jim took in the beginning. You know, we did the Muppet show and then we started yeah. doing movies. The show established the characters in people's minds and they kind of needed to be reestablished before you start doing these independent projects where people at that point had to actually get up and leave their homes yeah. to go see the Muppets, you know? So, so if you're going to get them to go see you, let, let's establish yeah. them first. Um, but 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 you know they, they didn't see it that way. So so we we there was a long period of time we really didn't do a, a lot of television. We did a lot of appearances and, and things, small stuff. Um, and we did a we really did do a lot of work before yeah. we did that film. I mean, I was busy all the time. Kermit was everywhere in the world doing something. But it wasn't things that a lot of people saw. You know, it was like a group saw it, and this group <laughs> over here saw a thing and suddenly this movie came about yeah. you know did you enjoy that film the kind of idea of being back in the theater and doing the muppet show as a part of that film well i i think that's not a bad idea yeah hmm. uh i sort of had this i mean we've never used this in any of our any of our muppet as they call it muppet canon the muppet story <laughs> yeah but uh, let me tell you a real quick story, a little bit of departure from your question. So okay. I was driving up the coast in California between Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco with my family. And I looked up on the internet, well, what are we going to do when we pass through this one little town? And there was an, there was an old vaudeville theater there oh. where these people were doing a show every night. And you went in and it was typical, like on stage, you know, silly jokes, silly sketches, some songs, like a vaudeville show. Yeah. And they always they had a packed house and the, you know, the actors also served you your food. I mean, it was one of those kind of places. <laughs> it was terrific. And I thought, my God, this is what the Muppets would be doing if the Muppets were living their daily lives. They would have never yeah. stopped doing the Muppet show. They'd still be in the yeah. theater. They'd still be doing it. It just wouldn't be on television, you know? Yeah. And I thought, this is the Muppets, you know? So, so I always felt like that idea still was valid, you know? Yeah. And Statler and Waldorf would still yeah. be going there every They'd night. They'd still be sitting there. And still be the same age. That's right. That's right. Well, that's a great thing about being a Muppet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. every so often, you start to look younger and younger. I mean, yeah. Miss Peggy looks better than ever. She, she, she has uh, stayed well-preserved, yeah. 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 <laughs> is it true that they don't replace the Muppets as often as they used to? Because I think I heard Eric Jacobson say that the yeah. fuzzy they use now they've been using it like throughout the decade i think um well you know a character like fuzzy it depends on the puppet mm. a character like fuzzy is is a rugged sturdy puppet 
Yeah. Um, he's not likely to have a rip or a tear or a problem. Ah. The worst thing that happened to Fozzie is the fur would get matted and you can brush that and clean it up or, yeah. you know, he, he might get dirty. Yeah. Um, but, but he's, but he's not going to fall apart. He's well-made and, and sturdy. A character like Miss Piggy, sometimes you can't get through a whole day without the foam starting to fall apart. <laughs> um, and it's extremely expensive. Each one of those piggy heads cost a lot of money because somebody has to cast the foam. Somebody has to do all the detail work, you know, and, and they flock it with this, with this sort of stuff to make her look softer. It's quite complicated. Yeah. I mean, it sounds it. Yeah. Muppets Most Wanted came off the back of the success of the Muppets 2011 film. Mm. Was that also a fun film to work on? Because it's quite an interesting plot. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed that film probably more than the first of those two. Yeah. Only because uh, I, I love the idea that we were doing something that was a story. I mean, the other story was about the Muppets, but it was more about you know, the, the human characters and Walter, who Walter was a Muppet, but he was sort of ex- external to the normal core Muppets. Yeah. And to do an adventure story, mm. you know, like, like Muppets Most Wanted was, I, I really enjoyed that film a lot. And yeah. by then it was a lot of the same people working on it. You know, James Bobin, the director, and right down to the production staff and everybody. Um, and we had all gotten to a place after the first film where we had learned how to best work together. Um, you know, in terms of just communicating stuff and, and, and collaborating and stuff like that. It made a huge difference. Um, yeah. So I did love that film a lot. I loved, loved Tina Fey, by the way. Oh, yeah. Loved working with her so much. Yeah. It's such a shame that it was only filmed all at Pinewood. You didn't actually get to yeah. go to Berlin and Madrid. Well, that's true. Yeah, That's true. Uh, you know, there are worse places than Pinewood. But the worst place was, oh, my goodness. You may know the name of the area. I think it's called Upper Hayford. Ooh. Kind of forgotten the area. It's it's many 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 miles north of London. It's an old uh, military base. Ah, is that where you did the prison? The, yeah, that's where ah. the prison was. And they shoot a lot of films there these days. And, but the rumor is that there's all these underground bunkers from the from the wars <laughs> that are still occupied by secret technology. You know, it all this stuff. It may be true for all I know. But we were able to shoot there. The only issue was. It may be the coldest I have ever been in my life. Oh, yeah. Um, Some of that snow was fake, but most of it was real. And we were shooting outside overnight shoots. And I I had on so many layers that I I looked like a rock, like a big thing sitting in the middle of a field. And the only thing that was exposed was the arm that came out of this big pile (laughs) of blankets and things that was Kermit, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was it was really an interesting shoot. <laughs> yeah, I think I saw like a B roll of filming there late at night. And yeah, all the crew just looked so miserable and cold. Oh, we were freezing, and then we, we had these big airplane hangers, which were not terribly well. I mean, I guess they were airplane hangers. They were like these big, you know, those curved yeah. metal bunker kind of buildings, and uh, we were inside of those with heat running. But even in this side, it was freezing. You know, it was just freezing. Yeah. <laughs> Did it feel strange for the film having Kermit being away from the rest of the Muppets for most of the running time? Well, yes and no. I I think it's rare that that would happen, but obviously it was a big part of this plot of the story that he was meant to be away. Um, and, And in an interesting sort of way, it let Kermit have his own separate story. Um, where he was mostly playing off of human actors, human characters, you know, and that's kind of fun. You know, Kermit, Kermit is quite strong 
as a character on his own. Mm. And, and, you know, I would go do a lot of appearances as Kermit where it was just Kermit, you know, appearing on a, on a, on a chat show. And it always seemed to work. Kermit fits in very nicely with, with human characters. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been on many chat shows as Kermit. And I think you've mentioned before about how it doesn't really feel like you're doing Kermit. You're just sitting back and watching the show. Well, it got to that stage in a funny sort of way. Yeah, I would. um, They were always improvised. Uh, Sometimes I would have notes from a a, a wonderful writer named Jim Lewis, who would give me suggestions in case I needed something to say. But oftentimes what would happen is I'd have some very funny material that I could potentially use. But it only kind of worked if the host said what gave you the set you up for it. If If they never said that, what was written didn't work. So you had to be fast on your feet. Um, and so, yeah, it got to this funny place. I mean, I was Kermit for, for 27, 28 years. So it was a long time. Yeah. And I would say about the last third of that time, um, Kermit just kind of was there. He flowed through me in this funny sort of strange way. And I would not know what he was, he was as, although he was a separate person, I would not really know what was going to come out next. Yeah. And it's, it's a really odd feeling. It's hard to even describe. I, I'm sure anybody who does improv probably knows this stuff. Yeah. But it's like, you're, it's like you're walking out on the edge of a cliff <laughs> as, you're, as words are coming out of your mouth. You know, if you imagine like a timeline and here's words and here's a cliff <laughs> and you're walking right out there and you might walk right off the edge. You know, you don't know what, how, how the sentence you just started is going to end. <laughs> And, but, but you know, you've got to end it and and the character's got to keep talking, Mm. you know? So it's really, I mean, it's like a tightrope, you know, you, you could fall off at any moment, but you, but I learned to trust, trust the risk of doing that with Kermit because I always knew that he would have something to say, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And there's been some incredible moments in chat shows. So it's clearly working. Yeah. Well, it, it was my favorite thing to do always. Yeah. It was, it, it could be, I, I was never nervous before doing them, but it could still be a little bit intimidating. And I always felt like it was the kind of stuff that, that I got the most growth out of the character. You know, he would, I would find out new things about Kermit because of what he said during a show. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Did you ever come across any hosts that maybe felt a bit weird interviewing a puppet that to them, they might not see as a living thing? Well, I, I, I'm sure it was happening yeah. more often than not. It seemed to, they seemed to just go with it. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I was never really terribly aware of, a, of there being a problem because of that, but I know it must be odd uh, you know, I've never been in a situation where I was interviewed by a puppet. Yeah. But if the puppeteer is doing their job right, the puppet is not even necessarily looking in your eyes as he's talking. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, we, we would always, you know, if, if, the, if, if this is a person and this is a puppet and the puppet's looking, he might, I might only turn him that much, which means to this person, he's looking way out there. You know, he's not even <laughs> looking at the, at the person. So yeah. you're talking to this thing and trying to look into its eyes when its eyes are not looking back at you. Yeah. You know, that's got to be strange. Yeah, you know? <laughs> absolutely. I think the hosts are definitely looking into the eyes of these characters because I think you went on the Jonathan Ross show as Kermit and Miss oh, yeah. Peggy was there as well. And Jonathan Ross was just like, I was just looking in your eyes and expecting you to respond. And <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, he was great. That was a, that was a really fun show. 
show. I, I think that's the one where Eric and I were built into the floor underneath a, a like a, a seat, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you could see usually there's a gap under a sofa, but there wasn't. There wasn't. Yeah, we, yeah. we were encased in this uh, yeah. in this box, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered, how do they make those sofas? Because on a chat show, yeah. they have that sofa. And then on the show that you're on, it's the same design of sofa, but they've custom made yeah. it for you. That seems like a lot of effort for just one guest. Yeah, well, and I always thought so too. And I would always kind of tread lightly when people would say, you know, what do you think we need to do for this thing? I'd say, well, we need to build a copy of their sofa. And that can be an expensive thing. And some shows would have the budget to do that and some shows wouldn't. And then once in a while, they would actually have us cut a hole in their real piece of furniture. (laughs) You know, Uh, sometimes, I mean, we would destroy a piece of furniture and anything in between. There, There were shows where I would sit just off camera, like off to the side. Yeah. And, and I would, you know, the camera would crop me out of frame oh, yeah. and, and Kermit would be sitting on a sofa and my arm was basically just resting on something, you know, if that makes sense. Is that a lot more comfortable to do than having your arm right up there for however long it would be? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it can be. It can be. Some of those situations where we were working through holes in the bottom of cushions uh, are really <laughs> uncomfortable yeah. because, you know, it, it always hurts when you have to hold your arm steady for a long period of time, no matter what position it's in. Yeah. But if you're through a hole in something that's kind of tied around your arm, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no blood flow getting there and it can really kill you. Yeah. You've got the hole to do the head. Yeah. How does the arm rod work from under a sofa? Well, you know, we kind of had to make that up on every different thing we did. Uh. In some cases, Another puppeteer could be behind a chair, oh. like like the chair back, and the rods could come all the way through out to the hand so that the hand was moving like this and the rod was going all the way back. Um, sometimes I was able to manage to do it like a second little hole through the, you know, through the, through the side of the same cushion I was working under. Uh-huh. It, it just, it, it depended on so many factors. Oftentimes the amount of space between the actual floor of the studio and where the chair is, sometimes it was only like that much, wow. you know, six or eight inches. I, mean, that, I don't even know how that's possible to even fit under. Yeah, we did some things that were, I would say, were close to impossible. And it was always nice to be able to do those because it really was, you, you, you almost accepted that Kermit was just sitting in a chair. Yeah. You know, there's no place for a person to be, Yeah, you know. Like a magician's trick. I think I remember one time you were on, I think it was like the Alan Carr chat show. Yep. And there was a drink on the table, but you couldn't actually get out of <laughs> yeah. your seat and get it. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. Exactly. That happened yeah. all the time. And oftentimes I would really like to have had something. <laughs> you know? I'm underneath trying to talk, you know. Yeah. Maybe that would make the out of body Kermit experience thing a lot easier if you did have something. To do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Kermit, Kermit's okay, but I, but I need liquid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the 2015 Muppet series was a little bit different to anything that had been done before, really. What did you think about that? Because it's kind of mixed what people thought about that series. Yeah, I I think it. it, it, I kind of relate back to what I said a little bit about Muppet's Wizard of Oz. Um, I think in terms of the challenge of the puppetry we had to do on that, because we were trying to do the characters very... The point of the show was that it was supposed to be their real lives behind the scenes. So we really made the puppetry much smaller and more subtle as though they were these living, breathing things. So we did some puppet work that I think was really, really good. Yeah. Um, the overall idea for the show, I wasn't terribly crazy about. 
I think it went too far in the direction of, you know, taking the Muppets out of the craziness that they do, Yeah. you know, into this, they were just people walking down the street. And I think it was a little too much, Yeah. but I, but I would also hasten to say that towards the end of those shows, I think we were getting to a stage where it was starting to work. We found a balance between those two extremes. Yeah. And I, you know, I wish we had gotten the chance to do at least another season, another series of the show. I think we would have gotten to a good place. Yeah, I think if a few things were changed, it probably could have worked a lot better. Yeah. I think Fozzie is the main character had an issue with in that show because yeah. Fozzie having a girlfriend is not really imaginable. It, yeah, I think he just goes home, he lives with his mum, and he just comes up with jokes. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to you know. I would think when a when a group of people start trying to conceive of a show like that, they look at where a character's been. They look at how far they can stretch a character into a real world example. Yeah. And I, I tend to agree on that one. I think that was a little bit too far for Fuzzy. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I it just, it, it took him, what it really did for Fuzzy was take his innocence away. He's a very innocent character. Yeah. And I think Eric tried to play him innocent within that circumstance, but it's awfully hard. He's yeah. living with a, with a woman, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, he's, he's not, he's not fuzzy bear anymore. He's, you yeah. know, he's, he's a different guy. And that happened to a lot of the characters in that show. It was very hard to keep them who they are. Yeah. Did you agree with the decision for Kermit and Miss Peggy to be split up during that show? I did. I did. And I'll tell you why way back in the eighties, Jim and Frank Oz had talked about doing that very thing. Oh, um, We were at a stage after the Muppet show and after I think probably around Muppets take Manhattan, where one of the things that was being kind of tossed around was the idea of having Kermit and Piggy split up. Now, I don't know whether they would have stayed split up and I don't, yeah. it would have been handled a little differently in those days because there was no internet, you know? Yeah. Um, and, it, and I don't think it would have been done to fuel a project in other words, the, the way we did it, it kicked off the series. And so we did a whole series where they weren't together. Yeah. I think it was kind of a publicity stunt. Mm, yeah, I think so. Uh, and, and, and we should have gotten back away from it sooner. Yeah. Uh, and, and as far as I know, it, it was, it's never been corrected. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, th- as far as I know, they're still apart, but then they're kind of together. And it doesn't make any sense to me now. I think they've said in interviews since that they are friends even though in the last episode of that series there was kind of a cliffhanger about yeah them maybe getting back together so i don't know yeah it's it's very yeah it, i i don't here's the thing i feel like kermit is the is like the sun in the muppet universe he's the center of all of it yeah and all of the other characters tend to revolve around kermit and kermit is the central connection to the audience in a way, even though Kermit has his zany moments, he's almost a straight man to some degree yeah. for all these other characters to get to be zany and crazy and angry and silly and whatever they are. Yeah. And for Piggy to work as Piggy, I don't think a significant change to how she relates to Kermit works. You know, yeah. it, 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 And again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. The Muppets don't just exist in a story or in a film. We perceive them because we tried to make it work to have a life where they are celebrities or just people in the world that live a life. And once you start messing around with that, 
they become less interesting, mm. you know, to yeah. the audience. And so I think they've lost that connection to, to some degree. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I don't know if there was ever a moment where Kermit and Miss Piggy kind of officially got together. Because as far as I'm concerned, in the Muppet Show, it was kind of Miss Piggy fancied Kermit, yeah. and he was trying to like mm-hmm. put her onto Gonzo. Yeah. And then yeah. I don't know. And there was a bit of a romance in the Great Muppet Caper, but that was they were kind of yep. playing different characters to who they were. Really, it, it, it so, was on again, off again. Yeah, yeah. and and I think. It needed to be done that way. And I know we all thought, oh, we've done so this so much of this, you know, Kermit saying, well, we're not married and Piggy saying we are married. And they, we, we had done it so much for so many years. It all felt like it needed to change into something to take it forward. Yeah. <clears throat> but I don't have the answer as to what that is exactly yeah. in the real world, because we really had, we really had, you know, by then they had a life outside of their movies what do they, do they go, do they live together? What do they do? How does it work? Is Kermit still saying, no, we're not together? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how it works. I know, because <laughs> it just felt a bit weird that Kermit is always denied that they were in a relationship. Yeah. And then in the 2011 movie, it's like, oh, they did have a relationship, but they drifted apart and now they've yeah. got back together. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that whole, that whole conceit in the film was odd to me that mm-hmm. the Muppets had, it's as though they had had some sort of a, a, a disagreement that yeah. had separated them. The reason, and again, say, it goes back to the same thing. <laughs> the reason that didn't work for me, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them was that we had been, the Muppets had been out there in the world, even though we hadn't done a big film. Yeah. And so much of our audience saw the Muppets on, in so many appearances. We had done a thing, we'd done a Bohemian Rhapsody thing where mm. it's a huge success. Oh, yeah. You saw all the Muppets together. Um, so the Muppets had not disappeared off the face of the earth and to then start a film saying that way back in the eighties, they had had a fight and gone their separate ways. Didn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, it, it violated the Muppet ongoing thread. Yeah. You know? I mean, the only possible explanation <laughs> is the characters from the Muppet show are completely different characters yeah. to the ones in all the movies after that. And then they come back exactly. in 2011, which is complete nonsense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. You know, they're not different. They need they need to be consistent, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I suppose, yeah. I, I guess that helped the film to kind of have a sentimentalness and nostalgic thing about it. Do you think about kind of going back and doing The Muppet Show? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that may have been behind the decision to <clears throat> that. Well, two things. I think having them separate gives you the chance to see what they've been doing all this time and bring yeah. them back together. So that becomes a beat in the film that's can be a funny thing to look at. The problem is even though some of those things were funny and, and you got to do all of that and there is a certain sentimentality to it. We, we could have done all of those things without violating any of the Muppet thread, you know, and that's where it goes wrong to me just to do something for the sake of having a story and <laughs> for the sake of, you know, the, the, just the humor of it if you're if you're not following the line of the characters i think it's kind of the wrong way to go yeah but i think you played kermit so well in that movie mm-hmm. like in pictures in my head yeah and particularly you know the scene at the end where they think that everyone's forgotten them and they didn't raise the money but then they go through the door and the big crowd is there i think yeah. you know yeah. when you walk through the door and react to the camera flashing it's just great well i do too yeah. i mean you know you uh, 
you work with what you're doing, you know, and all those moments are, are nice in the film, even if the, you know, even if getting there was a little rocky. I mean, I, I love when he walked out in the street and people cheered. I think it's a nice thing, you know. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it worked very well. And you mentioned about the Bohemian Rhapsody video. You've also yeah. worked on a few other viral videos, like you did Beaker in Ode to Joy and Habanera and stuff. Yep. What was the idea behind all of that to do those videos? Well, I think I think we were looking for something we could do with the Muppets that would keep them out there in the world and relevant. Yeah, that was. I mean, we put some expense and time in those, but they were relatively inexpensive in terms of they weren't a television series and they weren't a film. Yeah. And it was a way for the Muppets to be out in the world and visible mm. doing some entertaining stuff. And I, I got pretty involved in those, especially the first round of them. A lot of them were kind of concepts that I put together because, first of all, they they allowed me to do that. But yeah. second of all, it was... My goal was to make them as much like those Muppet show pieces we did as possible. They were three to five minute little short things, a song or a sketch or whatever, and and try to really set the stage for the type of humor that made the Muppet show work so well. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's what I was going for. Yeah. And you did Beaker in a lot of them. Beaker is kind of another one of those characters like Sprocket where yeah. it doesn't speak English and yeah. you have to kind of convey it all with tone and actions. Well, yeah. Even though he doesn't say words, he, he expresses so much, Yeah, you know. Uh, in his expressions, you know, and, and uh, even in, the, I mean, the sounds he makes once in a while, an English word will, uh, a real oh, word yeah. will slip out. Sadly, temporary. Yeah. Yeah. He's a fun, uh, he's a fun character. I, I always love the idea that he, in the age of the internet, that he would be a person who would, you know, be kind of dissociated with people. But when he goes home at night, he can be whoever he wants to be on the web, you know, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people would assume he's just a one-dimensional character, but yeah. there's probably a backstory there because yeah. Bunsen puts him through all this horror of experiments. But exactly, he still goes to work every day. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that was that was my take on it too. <laughs> yeah, and how was doing Statler and Waldorf as well? Do you think that those characters are kind of maybe important to be your own critics? Oh, well, I th that's certainly what Jim was trying to do when they happened. Yeah. They were, um, you know, it was, it was his way of making fun of the, the stuff that was already being done. Yeah. And he did it in a way that was funny, but it, it, it was almost as though, you know, they were, they were poking fun at the Muppets before anyone else had a chance to. Yeah. That's you know, true. you know, before the audience could do it. Yeah. I was uh, going to say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> now, Muppets Tonight also was a series in the 90s for two series. Kermit wasn't the host. It was Clifford. Right. Am I right in saying that was because Jim Henson didn't want Kermit to be a host after he died or something like that? No, it was uh, a function of, I think, the, the Hensons at that point were trying to see if it was possible to have another character to host the main show and Kermit yeah. could take a more backseat position. And it, and it was a noble attempt because it was trying to introduce new characters into the mix, which is always something that needs to happen, yeah. you know, rather than relying on <clears throat> all the characters that were formerly done by other people, you know? Yeah. Um, but unfortunately it, I, I don't think it, well, Clifford was a great character and Kevin is amazing, but I'm not sure it caught on 
in quite the same way it would have if Kermit had continued to host. Yeah. It's that connection, you know, to start off using Kermit's connection is a smart, smart move. Yeah. It's a bit weird putting a relatively new character at that time. Yeah into the center stage it just doesn't feel right you wouldn't know it's the muppets without all these other characters around yeah exactly exactly well you're currently working on cave-in so we'll talk about that sure just describe to us what that is well uh cave-in is a monthly live stream that i've been doing for about a year and a half now with a new original character of my own named weldon the it guy and weldon is um an actual troll. He's an internet troll, yeah. uh, which is what IT stands for, for Weldon. <clears throat> and Weldon's point is, because he's a grouchy little troll, is that he wants people to call in on his show and express the most miserable thing that has happened to them since the last time he did a show. So we do this once a month, usually yeah. the last Friday of the month. Uh, and I've been having a great time with it. It goes back to something I love to do more than anything, which is to really improvise the whole show. And doing that for an hour, you know, you risk that everything you do is not funny, is not going to work. But more often than not, we have a really good time with folks calling in. And I have my group of regulars and I love to have new people call in because it gives new conversations, you know, to things. And then in the middle of each of these shows, we have been doing a a fairly elaborate and ambitious production number. very much like a lot of the the old Muppet production numbers, but with this one character playing all the parts. Um, so that that it, it, they're they're very uh, big production numbers that that for for me to put together. Yeah. So where are we able to keep up to date with you on social media and websites and everything? Well, you can. You, I do have a website. It's mm. it's very easy. It's stevewitmire dot website uh, rather than dot com. So Steve Whitmire mm. website. Um, I do a lot, I do a lot of stuff on Instagram just to let people know what's going on, where I'm going to be, if I'm doing an appearance somewhere or a yeah. talk, uh, and the, and Instagram is Steve underscore Whitmire. Um, so that's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. And then you can see any of the cave in production numbers or the episodes on YouTube at the cave in YouTube channel. Uh, you can search that by cave in. But but maybe the easiest way to find it is to search the character's name, which is Weldon the IT guy. Yeah. It'll pop up and you can, you know, if you if you have a lot of time on your hands, you can watch the episodes. They're long. Oh, yeah. They're all on there. But you can also just watch these production numbers on a playlist. And they're about two to three minutes long. So I sort of recommend people do that. Yeah. And then call us on the show live, you know, oh, yeah. find a time on a Friday night and call us and talk to Weldon. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's been great having you on and very nice of you to take the time. Oh, you're very welcome, Toby. I appreciate you reaching out and I really enjoy myself. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The throbbing pulse of sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.